0: One of my favorites, so I was happy to pick it today as we look at an interesting passage, interesting in that it isn't often preached on. Genesis chapter 10. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10 this morning. Looking at genealogy. How often do you look back at your genealogy, at your family line? Usually when you look back, it's out of curiosity to see if there's someone famous or maybe infamous in your family tree. Oh yes, I remember that family member. I remember hearing about that one. My, one of the places where I pastored, uh, there was a member in the church whose ancestor was the president of the Senate of Dort, Johannes Bogerman. That was an interesting uh, find. She could claim a... Connection with a great Synod of Dort, 16,18 and 19 i don't have anybody that famous, probably infamous, but I won 't go into that. But this morning, Genesis chapter 10 and the later verses of chapter 11 seem something of a name pronunciation contest. let 's see if we can get the pronunciations right. An exercise in pronunciation, but these chapters have something more to say to us, as I think we'll see this morning. Or if you're visiting with us this morning, we're going through Genesis. We didn't—I didn't just pick this obscure passage because I like to preach on obscure passages. We're at Genesis chapter 10, and so the outline is as follows. At least in, in the book of Genesis, not for the sermon this morning, but for the book of Genesis, Moses begins uh, by recording the genealogy of Japheth. John Calvin states that he he surmises that he does this because. Japheth is the furth- that was the nation that spread out the furthest and probably least familiar uh, to the people, so he introduces them first, then Ham's descendants are mentioned as we're going to see, a lengthier list because these nations are familiar to god 's people. Remember Genesis is being writ- written to god 's people by Moses, the inspiration of God, and uh, they have quite a history with these. With these nations. The Canaanites come from the, land, from the line of Ham, so we see in verses 15 and following. Familiar people groups that we read about later when Shem's descendants, the Israelites, come into the land of promise, or are about to enter the land of promise, and we hear about the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all of those groups. They're mentioned here. Be familiar to God's people. Then Shem's descendants appear last in this chapter. Genesis has a, a practice of putting the elect line last. You can look at a number of examples, Canaanites first, then the Sethites, you, you hear about Esau before you hear about Jacob and, and so forth and so on. I to look at all of the, the, the speculation about why that is this morning. We, we're just going to look at this, uh, this passage in light of, of scripture. And direct your attention then to the beginning of Genesis chapter 10 as we'll read the the chapter. This is the Word of God. These are the generations of the sons of Noah Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. Sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ladim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtihim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kafterim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpakshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shim by their clans, their languages, their lands and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these the nations spread about on the earth after the flood this is the word of God may add his blessing to the reading proclamation of it this morning well not exactly a list of most popular baby names of 1984 is it some names, some nations that were represented from individuals. We don't have just all individual names here. Some nations are mentioned here as well, names, nations that would be familiar to the people of God. But why is this genealogy in the Bible? We have quite a few genealogies in the Bible, if you think about it. First Chronicles, Matthew, Luke, Old Testament, New Testament, there's genealogies throughout. Others besides, those just mentioned. But genealogies are profoundly theological. They tell us who we are, where we come from. And this morning what we see is that we all come from common origin, from God. All the nations, all peoples, everywhere. These are not usually, these chronologies, or these genealogies rather, are not usually meant to give chronological uh, uh, information. For example, you can look at Aaron's line in Ezra uh, 7 and 1 Chronicles 6, and they don't match because they they were given for a different purpose. It's not that one's true and one's false, but they had a different purpose. There was a different reason for the order, for the structure of the genealogies. They're not usually given as, as an exhaustive list of every descendant. The genealogy we probably most remember is Matthew chapter 1, where we have that stylized account that lays it out in three sections of 14 verses apiece, basically to show that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's gospel is preparing us to see that Jesus is the beginning of the new Israel. There's a new beginning after a long period of silence, 400 years, God was now going to speak through his king, through his deliverer, through his high priest. The Old Testament looked forward to him. And he is of the line that God promised from this line, he would provide a savior, a king, one who would be sacrifice, priest. Well, the genealogy here in Genesis 10 is showing that all the peoples of the earth come from Noah. If you have a study Bible and you want to look at that today, the notes try to lay out where these ancient nations have their modern day equivalents today. We're not going to go look through that this morning. There's a break in the genealogy in verses 8 to 12 to detail the origin of those peoples who... Basically rebelled, later conquered Israel, Assyria and Babylon. Remember Assyria captured uh, or ransacked the northern kingdom and wiped them out. And the southern kingdom was attacked by Babylon and was brought into exile. These great enemies of Israel came from the same stock. That's what Moses is writing here as God's inspiring him. And he's giving this word to the people of God. And they're saying, what? Those are my relatives? I don't want them in my family tree. I don't have anything to do with those people. The name of the father of this group that rebelled against the Lord, the name of the father was Nimrod. We've looked at him already, and his name means we shall rebel. A fitting title for the father of those peoples who stand against God and against his people. And the curse-laden line of, Can- of Canaan, where do they end up? They end up between Syria and Egypt, right in that promised land where the people of Israel after exile went. You remember the Canaanites, right, with all of the, all of the people groups there. So those are brought out. Those are mentioned here. The people say, oh, I see. That's, so that's where those people come from. Those are, those are our distant relatives, they're of the same line, can't be. They must, uh, no. Just think about it. The, just one place in particular, the Jebusites. They lived in the area of Jebus, which is where, the, uh, where David had to attack and where Jerusalem was set up. So those, that, that, that was the area where the people of God ended up. Jebus. The Jebusites, David removed them. 2 Samuel 5 tells us that the city of Jerusalem might be established. Regaining ground, if you will. Going into that land to receive what God has promised in part. as As a picture, as a type of what was to come. You're not likely impressed with the names and places. Believe me, as I sat with this passage this week, I thought, okay. Now what are we going to do with this? Maybe let's just go to Genesis 12 right away. But as, as foreign sounding as this is, God has it here for a purpose. And that purpose I've, I've, I've said mentioned already. And that is that God is saying, I am the God of all peoples. The... the, the the information is coming through Moses to the people of God. He writes the first five books, right—Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's giving this, this, uh, given this, uh, this to write down and to show to the people. This is, this is who your relatives are, and he opens God's revelation to the world with this information. It's the first book of the Bible. Well, children, what I want you to understand in, in one in in part is this: that there's never been a time where there haven't been people, at least post-fall, that didn't stand against God. Right? Or they didn't stand against those who loved God. Your parents sometimes say, Oh, for the good old days. Well. There was always some bad, there was always some resistance to the truth. There isn't a time we can go back to and say, oh, I wish I would have lived then and everything would have been wonderful. Out of the nations, we start to see God developing his plan, Out of the, or revealing his plan. Out of the nations, he chooses to place his blessing on the descendants of Shem, the Israelites. We haven't read Genesis 12 yet, but we know of God's calling of Abram and his promise to make a great nation of him. We, we know that he was the father of Israel, and the Lord promised to bless the nations through him. A descendant would come from him who would bless the nations. God's plan is revealed. I said he was, he was I forget what I just said, but it's not that he was making up the plan he had the plan from eternity and he was now revealing it showing how he was going to lay out his plan in the world Abram's chosen by grace he is one who was living beyond the river as it says in Joshua 24 worshipping idol gods he wasn't one that God found sitting under a tree worshipping him rightly he was From beyond the river, Joshua 24, verse 3 tells us. And God called him, called his father. We're going to look at that next week, Lord willing, where he is called out from beyond the river in keeping with God's grace and mercy. And he tells him, you're going to have many descendants. And Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed that God was going to fulfill his plan, Provide a descendant, provide a deliverer to bring in the nations. And he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. By faith, he saved. His descendants, the Israelites, came to see themselves as special when Jesus arrived on the scene, now we're jumping ahead a number of years, arrived on the scene, the Israelite leaders were claiming a special privilege with God because they said, we're sons of Abraham. We trace our family tree, our lineage, our genealogy back to Abraham. If you remember, Jesus in John chapter 8 is not impressed by this. In fact, he's very troubled by what? By their lack of faith in him. By their establishment on their genealogy, their, their line with some names that they felt were of significant status before God, rather than looking to God, who saves those whom he saves, not from, because of their greatness, but according to his grace and mercy. Remember the history of Israel. They went into exile because of their sin. Before they entered the land of promise, God spoke to them through Moses saying, Remember who you are. You are set apart. And he says this, Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other People that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. They become his people because he loves them, because he shows them kindness in keeping with the oath that he had made to their fathers, he says. Nothing here about your merit, because you're somehow worthy of this. No, in fact, you were the least. You were the fewest. Then I showed my love to you. And what does he tell them? You're to be a light to the nations. You're not to mingle with the nations. Well, we know how well that turned out. We see the history there. We see the heritage. And after not speaking to Israel for 400 years, God sent another prophet. Well, he sent one to prepare that for that final prophet, John the Baptist, and then he sent his final prophet, his own son, Jesus. And he came as an obedient son, as true Israel, one who is submitting to the word of his father. He would not participate in the sins of the surrounding peoples, but proclaim the salvation to be found for all the nations in himself, teaching that God was the God of the nations and the savior of the nations. A figure came on the scene after Jesus ascended into heaven, that person was Saul. Saul was a proud Israelite, one who believed himself most special before the eyes of the Lord. His family line was of impeccable nature. His religious obedience was second to none. He was a picture of old Israel that found pride in its laws and traditions, thinking that they were Special before God because of all of these laws and traditions that they had established and that they kept. And God opened Saul's eyes on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians. Christ met him there. He was converted from a self righteous Israelite to an apostle. To whom? The nations. To the Gentiles whom he formerly hated and thought they had no right to anything which God had promised. He learned of Christ's mission to suffer before the nations, including before the Jews. His own did not receive him, John tells us in the opening of his gospel, John chapter 1. Paul learned of Christ's mission and understood that he must share in his sufferings as he brought the gospel to the nations. Remember what Jesus, or remember what God said to Ananias. You must go to Saul and tell him he's going to be, he's going to suffer much for the gospel. Acts chapter 9. Acts 17, we see him uh, bringing the people back to Genesis chapter 10. He's talking to these nations that don't understand where they come from and who, who they are to worship. Listen to what it says, Acts 17. He's on the the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Not surprising, right? Made in the image of God. They're going to worship something. We've said this over and over again the last few weeks. It's not what you're going to worship. Not whether you're going to worship, but what you worship. He says this, that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And here is Genesis 10, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him, we live and move and have our being. In Him, everyone, every nation, every people group. God is for the nations and He giving a Savior whose sacrifice can save people from every nation, no matter their background. Well, bounce with me again back to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, what do we see Jesus doing, sending out 70 disciples? What does that number mean? relate to. I didn't mention it at the outset, but I did mention it in another sermon, there are 70 nations there in that opening of Genesis 10. 70 nations representing all the peoples of the earth. Jesus sends out 70 disciples and Luke picks up on that and says, you know what, what's happening here? God is beginning to restore, he's beginning to draw in the nations in the sending of his son. He's beginning his reclamation project of the nations, as one commentator put it. But let's go back to Genesis 11 just for a moment. And then we'll see how these two come together. Why is Genesis 11 in the Bible, secondly, this morning? Well, we've already read that passage in weeks gone by. But notice the back and forth in the text. Notice what's happening here. We see the nations deciding, oh, well, you know what? We're not going to serve God. We're going to, we're going to resist him. The people said, come, let us make a tower to reach the heavens. And God came down to see that great tower and city, verse 4 and 5. People said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. And God gave them a name, confused, verses 4 and 9. The people said, come, let us gather together so that we will not be dispersed. Then the Lord dispersed them, verses 4 and 8. Genesis 10 tells us that God is creator of all people. Genesis 11 tells us that he is sovereign over the nations. He says, not only have I created you, but I order every event. You will not win in a battle against me. There is no rebellion. There is no coming together that is strong enough to overturn my decree for the world. Now in their dispersion, Which God authors. They develop different languages, different customs, different stories. They reject the true story of the world and make up their own. But God is Lord over these nations and their diverse customs. It's not as though they've got some different origin, some different beginning. They owe their lives, their existence to God, and they can only look to him for deliverance from the curse that is over all man, which is death because of sin. God doesn't break up the nations. We see here in breaking up the nations, dispersing them. He doesn't do that because he's somehow threatened by them. He does it because he doesn't want them to be concentrated such that they accelerate themselves into self-destruction. He graciously, or we might say mercifully, separates them. Not giving them what they deserve. He mercifully separates them. So that their plans, their concentrated effort against him will not be accelerated. Their different languages don't confuse him. He knows all of their languages. He sees their plots. When they set aside their differences to to battle against whom they now see as their common enemy, namely God, what does he do? He, He laughs at their silly plans. Psalm 2 tells us. He laughs at their puny attempts to rebel. Genesis 10. God creator of all people, Genesis 11, God sovereign, God Lord over all the nations. It is not a contest. It is not, we, we know the outcome. But what's interesting is how they're here together in the Bible. Why are they together in the Bible, Genesis 10 and 11? Well, pastor, 11 comes after 10. I know that. But why are they side by side? Why, why does Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put them here together, side by side? Chapter 10, again, common origin, made in the image of God, all peoples. Chapter 11, a picture of the curse of sin in all man, and the certain failure of any endeavor, no matter how concentrated a certain failure of any endeavor to rebel against god and no hope of making a name for ourselves no matter how much we come together no matter how many differences we set aside and say oh we're going to we're going to let's do this so that we can storm heaven let's do this so we can change the 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 makeup of the world it won't work it doesn't work And yet God does not destroy them here. These true descendants of Adam, conceived and born in sin, when they come together, their sin grows. But God does not destroy them. And he doesn't forget the peoples of the world. In the remainder of Genesis 11, Shem's line comes before us, the chosen line, verses 10 through 26, really then on, focusing more on Terah's descendants at the end of chapter 11 there to the end of the chapter. But the, Shem, the Shemites, or the Semites as we call them, takes, up, takes us up to Abram, the one through whom we read the nations, the nations will be reached. The peoples will be blessed. Though humanity has rebelled against God, he still loves his creation and has a plan to bring them back. Children, God wants us to know that we're to love sinners, even as he loves us, because we're sinners. We're of the same family line, the same tree. He doesn't want... The wicked to perish. He says turn from your sins. Repent of your ways. He says it to all of us. Of whatever line. Whatever genealogy we may want to follow. It all comes back. To our. Depravity and need. Of God to save us. He wants us. To love. Sinners. Not to love sin. Sin. But to love sinners. Not to speak destructively to them, but to speak with words of hope, words of gospel, words of life. Remember, said it already, but remember it again. Moses wrote this book for God's people. Where does it begin? In Jerusalem? In Israel? It doesn't. It begins with our common ancestor, Adam. Sin comes, brings on destruction. God spares a man and his family. The earth is repopulated. And God says, These are the nations. I want you to see, before I get into how salvation comes about, that I care about all people. Moses writes this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning with... Humanity's common origin in God's eye on the nations. God's not leaving behind the nations after Genesis 10. Okay, we got that out of the way. Let's just get those people, give them their 15 minutes of fame, and let's move on. He's setting this in the context of the world. And he chooses Abram as the means by which he will call back people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, as we see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. From Abram to Israel, then in the New Testament we see the church, the new Israel, the Israel of God, as Paul writes in Galatians 6.16, the new creation born of God by his spirit. Pentecost is the reversal of this dispersion, of this curse to separate the nations. It is to bring in the nations. It is God's sign that he is for the peoples in Jesus Christ. Even the first leaders of the church had to learn this. They had been with Jesus. They had heard him. They had to learn. Peter, you remember the children, the sheet that comes down from heaven with all the unclean animals? And Peter says, I can't eat that. I can't touch that. He's preparing him to go to the Gentiles, to Cornelius. Paul. Paul has to learn this. He takes, and he comes to a place by God's uh, grace and by his spirit where he takes the words of Isaiah 49 6 to be a light to the nations and says, That's that's what I'm doing. I am an apostle to, I couldn't even say this before, the nations. The unclean, the non Jew. Christ is that light to the nations and his messengers then take up that call as he calls us to be a light to the nations. Years before, here's the background, years before God through his prophet Isaiah declared that it was too small a thing to save Israel alone. That he was going to send his salvation to the ends of the earth. He's saying this to Israel in, in exile. He's saying, I'm not going to just save you. I am going to save the nations. And people are scratching their head going, Is Isaiah, you're the prophet to Israel. What are you talking about? My salvation, the Lord says, will reach to the ends of the earth. And you and I are the unworthy recipients of that gracious blessing of God. Which we tell others about. Of his kindness, of his goodness in Christ who took our sins upon himself that we might be delivered from the death that we deserved. Nations are brought together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a confidence in that when we go out that the gospel will be powerful to save. That people will hear and believe for God's salvation is for all people. So we stand against sin, but we boldly proclaim that sin can be forgiven for those who look to the Lord Jesus Christ, for those who believe. God's plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth is not yet finished. You play a part in that, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, to your neighborhood, to your children, to those beyond your neighborhood, to all those who will hear. To bring the gospel to a hurting world who think that their only hope is to make a name for themselves. To come together, to gather together, to find some sort of of pleasure in uniting so that they might have strength and not feel vulnerable. And yet we will forever be vulnerable in ourselves. For we are weak and under a curse. It is only as we come to Christ that we can be united in true strength given by God for his glory and not for our own name. This broad awareness of bringing the gospel to a hurting world, this broad awareness of God's blessing of the nations is in keeping with the opening chapters of the Bible. Even Genesis 10, which we often just skip right over. God is the God of the nations and he sends his salvation to the ends of the earth through his messengers who have received salvation. That's you. So the call remains. The charge is still the same. Bring the light to the nations who walk in darkness. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think of These names and nations, we think they sound so foreign, but we are all of one origin. We all have that great need to be saved from our sin. We do not claim some special privilege because we come from this line or that. But we hold to the promise that if we believe in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ that we have salvation and that we are delivered that in him though we are weak we become strong not for our own namesake but that you might be glorified in us through us lord give us that desire to be used to boldly proclaim the word wanting to see others those whose names perhaps we don't know or cannot pronounce We might see those others come to you, to come to faith in your Son. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.